Anyway, let's go ahead and we'll start class with prayer. Let's see. Uh, uh, Bob, would you have any questions? Sure. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thankful, Lord, for you. We're thankful for all you do for us. We're thankful for what you provide for us. We're thankful for this building that we can come to and learn from your word. Thankful, Lord, for Bob that uh, he's willing to come here and teach from your word. And uh, we do pray that uh, that we would all be attentive and listen to what's, what he thinks is being said. We do pray this in Jesus' name. There's two things I like about your name. My name. And you can spell it frontwards or backwards. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you've heard that before. <laughs> well, we're going to pick up looking at the Psalms tonight. Uh, so we left off last week on page 20. So what we'll do for the remainder of our time is go through some of the Psalms. Tonight I'd like to go through two Psalms. Now we'll get to some psalms where we'll probably spend the whole night on it because uh, you know, like Psalm 51, there's a lot of theology there. Um, you know, Psalm 137, there's a lot to discuss about dashing children against the rocks. So that always generates a discussion. Every time I've done this in a church, people are always concerned about that. So there, there will be some things where we'll spend a little bit more time, but on Psalm 13 tonight and Psalm 16 shouldn't make us that much time. So we will uh, stand up and, as they say at our seminary, let it rip. So let's see what happens here. So we're looking at the Psalms. The first category of Psalms, remember I explained last week how there's different categories of Psalms. Depending on how you look at it, there can be anywhere from six to eight different types of Psalms. Some will classify it even broader. I'm a simple guy, so I've broken it down into broader categories. So what we'll do tonight is we'll look at an individual lament and a corporate lament. Now the key with the term lament, as you can see, is it means mourning. What uh, many are surprised by, although I don't think any of you seem surprised, that one-third of the psalms are called lament psalms. So there's a lot of mourning that went on in the Old Testament. So we should not be surprised to see that. And David, you can come in, Jim. Oh, they walked it? <laughs> wow. Yeah. I don't need it. <laughs> it's locked, or I would have had the surgery class. Now, is there, you know what, do they still have notes available? I'll find out. Anyway, just. They should. Yeah. Anyway, just feel free to make your way in. And, uh, now, do you know Eric Benoit, Jim? Yes, I do. He's got his head shaved just like you. Yes, he does. It makes him look like a real his, his is by choice. Mine is. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> That's true. You no, it, pretty bad in seminary. Yeah, that, that, it, it, let's not talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's the type of style that police officers in Arizona have. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, and Eric, he's got all the way. He looks just like Kojak. Yeah, he's quite a police officer. I was there. Yeah, yeah, oh, okay. I, I've seen him recently. So. Okay. Yeah, he is kind of an intimidating force. Sort of. If it weren't me, it would be intimidating. <laughs> well, anyway, it stands to reason he would be. I know him real well. Okay, well, let's... Uh, what we'll do is uh, we'll look at the introduction here to Lament Psalms. 
and then we'll start covering an actual psalm. So let's get a general overview of the Lament Psalm. As I said, this is the most dominant type of psalm in the Psalter. One-third of the psalms are this nature, which means there was a lot of lamenting, a lot of mourning going on in the Old Testament. In this type of psalm, a psalmist will often be mourning about the attack of his enemies. At other times, the psalmist may make a complaint about himself. And at times, he expresses disappointment with God. In fact, some of them, he just seems a little bit too bold for us. Uh, the way they directly address God and complain, it's, uh, you know, this doesn't seem like the Christian way to do it. However, the writers of the Psalms were not Christians. I think they were born again, but they weren't Christians. Uh, that comes bigger. Jesus wasn't a Christian. He didn't need to be born again. <laughs> so really, the expression Christian doesn't, it only applies to the New Testament era and following. They're believers. We can call them saints. Uh, I occasionally slip and call them Christians, but that's usually to test the waters to see if people are following me or not. So uh, David was a forerunner for a Christian, but he wasn't a Christian. But uh, with this type of psalm, he will get pretty pointed at God. So it'll surprise you a little bit. But nevertheless, I think if we know ourselves, we may be also quite the complainers at times. So, lament psalms, I say all lament psalms here. You should say in your notes, most lament psalms. There's one exception to the all. So, uh, this is all, all of a kind, not all without exception. That is, it's not all the lament psalms. Uh, they with the exception, I think it's Psalm 88, there is no expression of trust in it. But all the other Lament Psalms have expressions of trust. So that's what makes it fundamentally distinct between believers in God and non-believers. Uh, you go to the typical funeral in our day for non-Christians, it can be pretty disappointing, pretty sad. Uh, I... Uh, I know we well. We got a lot of Muslims in our area, and there there are very morbid funerals. Well, they really have no hope of um, a true afterlife, because the true afterlife comes in believing the God of the Bible to Jesus Christ, and so those are the ones that will be most uplifting. So for many Christian uh, funerals, memorials, like with Dan Elwood, that's. Uh, that's upbeat because he was a believer. So, generally speaking, that's not the case. So, uh, here with Lament Psalms, they primarily develop based upon their themes and mood. And they may also have similar literary elements. What I mean is language, rhetorical features. So, we're going to look at that a little bit tonight. So, just live with me for a few moments. Maybe you'll learn a few things. Maybe you can teach me a few things. So I would never say that's impossible. So uh, here on a general level, there's five literary or rhetorical elements that are generally present in Lament Psalms. Though I don't know that all of them have to be there, but they often are. And they may occur in any order as well as more than once in a psalm. Leland Riken, who's 
book I use uh, <coughs> on literature in the Old Testament, Words of Delight, he says that here's five elements. There's an introductory appeal to God, the lament. If the psalm doesn't have an expression of mourning, it's not a lament psalm. So that's a dead giveaway. Uh, thirdly, there's a prayer request. Uh, fourthly, there's an expression of trust in God with that one exception and a vow to praise God. A problem often encountered in laments is that the enemy is described in vague terms. I think last week I touched upon this, and I argue that sometimes that's intentional. The psalmist, with their authorial tent, I think were writing most of the psalms so that other believers could use them. So that may be vague. Now there's some, a few that are very specific. Psalm 107. But most are general. Well, that's why I think the psalmist, like many hymn writers, were writing to be used for other people to identify with and to use in worship. So we shouldn't be surprised by that. Generally, if I don't see a clear-cut enemy, if I'm preaching a psalm, I preach it generally. But you can be specific. You just don't identify the enemies. So uh, we'll see that. Uh, Tremper Longman, he, he maintains that in most cases the references are vague and we have every reason to believe they are so intentionally. The Psalms are purposely vague in reference to historical events so that they can be used in a variety of situations. So uh, that would be a key feature in the Psalms, especially the Lament Psalms. Page 21. It's perhaps a little misleading to think that to think of this simply as a lamentation in that this specific term is sometimes misconstrued as implying absolute pessimism. It is better to think of a biblical lament as maintaining a genuine trust in God's providence in the midst of mourning, in the midst of suffering. Most lament psalms are written from a first-person singular perspective, that is, I, me, my. Now, there are others, though not as many, that will be written with we, us, and our. The we, us, and our are called corporate, applying to more than one. The ones with the I are called individual laments. So what we will do tonight, we're going to look at uh, one individual lament, one corporate lament. <coughs> However, there are other types of lament. The penitential psalm is a lament psalm. Psalm 51, it's, it is a penitential psalm, but it fits into a category called lament psalms. The imprecatory psalms also fit into lament psalms. Now, they're more specific because they're praying down some type of judgment. That's what we mean by imprecation. Better way, remember Galatians? If anybody preaches another gospel, let him be accursed. That's an imprecation. It's a pronouncement of judgment. So it's not something confined to the Old Testament. Paul uses it in the New Testament. So I don't think we should be shocked by that seems to be entirely biblical. Uh, so how do you know when it's right to pray an implication? When I do it, it's always right. When you do it, it's wrong. <laughs> That's the key. But isn't that how we view life so often? I can do it, I'm right, you're not. Well, you can say the same thing about me. So I think there are reasons why they do pray the implications, and theologically we'll need to understand some of those reasons. 
In those contexts, they were right. And by the way, I would say most of my implications are because of selfishness. Road rage, that's a big one. <laughs> and, uh, you know, frustration with uh, people you work with. Although I have to admit, I work with a pretty good group of guys. So, uh, you know, we, I mean, we disagree on some things, but we get along pretty good. And that's why we've talked together so long. If we didn't, you know, in some sense, like teaching together, we'd have people flaking off. So I don't have this situation, but I know some of you work in places where people can drive you nuts. <coughs> well, that's when you feel justified in praying in a precatory song. So uh, anyway, it's, uh, we'll see what are the proper reasons for it. So, but tonight we want to start with the individual lament because that's the more common. So let's look at this, uh, number one, the in individual lament of Psalm 13. What I'm going to do tonight... Um, Let's see, what we'll generally do, we'll read through the psalm first. And then we'll break it down. <coughs> so, uh, can I get one of y'all to read Psalm 13? Uh, all six verses? Uh, go ahead. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord for he has been good to me. Notice how he moves from the morning to his trust in God and his actual expression, I will thank the Lord. So we can see the movement there. Now what we're going to do, we're going to, well, if you saw it, you would have seen the I, me, my. What we want to do is we want to look at some of the rhetorical features. So what I'll generally do when we look at a song, we will focus on certain literary features, then we'll look at the actual content I always summarize the song when I call it the big idea, so hopefully we can put it all together. But my analyses are based on understanding the type of genre, looking at the overall flow or the structure of the song. But if I want to understand and communicate it, I have to break that down to one sentence. Like I said, I'm a simple guy. So these complex thoughts, you know, they may be good for, you know, some people, but I start from the simple and I build to the complex. And I think most people, if they're being honest, that's the way we do things. So let's take a look at these rhetorical features here. I'm using NASB here. Our, our church uses NASB, and I've used it for our Bible Institute. Some of my notes are in the NIV, my seminary notes are in the NIV. You got stuck with the ones that are NASB. It would have taken too much time to update it, but I thought I'd updated them, but I have not. So I taught this originally at our Bible Institute, and so they are in NASB. Um, so I have the text quoted here. Notice in verse 1, we have the introductory appeal to God. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Now, that sounds like a little bit of hyperbole, doesn't it? Forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Uh, when we want to... Uh, influence somebody, hyperbole is always a good thing to use. You never do that. 
or you always do that? Or will you forget me forever as if God's not omniscient? <laughs> well, the psalmist knows that. This is the depth of the emotion. You know, I don't think there's a problem with using hyperbole myself. We understand what it means. Um, usually when I want to influence uh, my wife's behavior, I'll say she always does something or she never does something. And that will get her attention. She'll do the same thing for me. But don't we all use that? And I'll usually say to her, well, Linda, that's hyperbole. <laughs> she says, oh, I'm speaking the truth. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Maybe she is. But uh, the truth is is that we use that. The psalmist uses it. It's not illegitimate. But we have to understand that hyperbole is an intentional exaggeration. So he's overstating his case here. So that's the introductory appeal to God. Then notice the lament. How long shall I take counsel in my soul? Or as the... <laughs> By the way, I do like the NIV better than Nancy. I think this reads much better. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Notice that's the lament. He's mourning. This is the key issue in identifying these psalms as lament psalms. On a general level, laments are motivated by a psalmist mourning, at times complaining, over an attack by his enemies, his own sin, and sometimes he may be overwhelmed by his misperceptions of God's providence. Now, the psalm we're probably most familiar is Psalm 51. Here in that psalm, he's mourning his sin. And he goes to a great extent. I call that the uh, Old Testament poetic counterpart to 1 John 1 9. It's just got a lot more verses, and it's more graphic, and it's more detailed. But I think the concept's the same. David, as a believer, needed to repent. He graphically portrays his difficulties, and we should identify with it. So, I mean, I've turned to that psalm many times, and I suspect many of you have as well, because it is very good to see David's thoughts, who is the man after God's own heart, when he fell into sin. Now, I hope we don't fall as deep as he did, but it does show you a genuine believer can fall into uh, great extremes in sin. Uh, it, it does seem to me that sometimes we're a little naive, thinking, well, a Christian couldn't do that. Well, they shouldn't. <laughs> but uh, all things are possible. And I've seen people fall into great sins. I've seen people repent after a lifetime uh, with extreme consequences. But I would say if they are genuine believers, they should repent. It may take time, but they should. That doesn't mean they do it immediately. Um, but I know some of you all know some people who <laughs> have done that. So uh, that's the way life is. Usually when I uh, try to reconnect with people like that, I always tell them to examine themselves to see whether they be in the faith or not. They have no right to assurance of salvation if they're living in sin. Uh, I know some will claim, well, I know I'm saved. I, you know, I feel the love of God in me. Well, then how can you live that way? Well, you need to be shaken up and repent. So really, we continue the Christian life just like we began it. 
I became a Christian. And the Spirit of God regenerated me, granted me repentance and faith. I continued the Christian life as a repenter and a believer. That, to me, is fundamental for my existence. I will sin till the day I die. Uh, you know, the gradations vary with circumstances and stuff like that, age. Age is a great debilitator of activities. But, uh, you know, still, you know, our thoughts were not pleasing to God. And uh, I do think we have to repent. We're not re-crucifying Christ. We're looking back to the cross using First John 1.9. We're thanking him for his forgiveness. But I would say that if we don't have that type of spirit, we may not be Christians. So, to me, we continue it just like we began it, with repentance and faith. So I could say that to somebody who's turned away from the faith, that you need to repent and believe. Well, if he does come back to the faith, I would say, well, I told you to do the same thing that you did to get started. And you're doing the same thing as a believer. In fact, in the New Testament, we're called believers. We continue in belief. Now, the term repenter is not used, but it is a, see, I think it's a proper theological summarization of some passages in the New Testament that we are repentance. So, we begin it the same way. I use Psalm 51 with people who uh, seem to be struggling. If somebody seems like they've turned away, I just go to 2 Corinthians 13.5 and say, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith or not. So, to me, uh, that's good for that, but, but that's another lament song. So that's Psalm 51. That's an expression of sin. This is not the case with sin, though, here. Notice in this context, for some reason, God seems to turn away from the psalmist. There, there's a sense of alienation, divine alienation. But notice verses 3 and 4. Notice his prayer request. Look on me, and answer, O Lord my God, give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. Notice his three requests there. Look, answer, give light to my eyes. That is, give me renewal. If you don't, I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. There's three different things there. I'll sleep in death. Obviously, uh, he could be talking about the culmination, or it could be another hyperbole. Uh, my enemies will say, you know, I have not overcome them. They're, they're going to look down on me and say how weak you were. In fact, he goes one step further, they'll rejoice. So that's uh, putting Saul in the wounds. That's what I would call it. So that's his request. And notice, if God doesn't do that, then those things will happen. Well, notice the expression of trust in God. Notice the big contrast in verse 5. But. So, it's been about mourning. It's been about his hyperbole, about God hiding his face. But, I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. So it's a clear expression of trust. And then notice fifthly the vow to praise God. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Or as the NIV has, I will sing to the Lord for he has been good to me. So notice he's looking back over the past. I'm going to sing, but God throughout my life has been good to me. So notice the past tense there. 
for he has been good to me. So he's recounting the faithfulness of God. Well, that's the rhetorical elements here. So I think we can see all five of those. What I also do with my notes, I'll give you other psalms of individual lament. Notice uh, I have a number of them, two and a half lines of them. So there's many. Uh, look at the content of Psalm 13. I would summarize the basic messages in times of suffering and apparent divine alienation. Believers place their full confidence in God's goodness. So this is in times of suffering, apparent divine alienation. Believers place their full confidence in God's goodness. So if I was crafting out a message, with, what I usually focus on is I get my uh, outline for the passage, then I summarize it in one sentence, and I would say, what did that mean to the psalmist? So I usually write that down. Then I take that and I say, well, how does that apply to the people of God today? So I will often adapt my exegetical big idea into what I call an expositional big idea. So it does relate to people of God in both testaments. And then uh, I develop my message around that and uh, develop an outline from that. So I know I've got a message on Psalm 13. It's, it's a barn burner. I think the last time I gave it, nobody came forward on the invitation. Oh, come think I didn't give an invitation. <laughs> it was just general. <laughs> so uh, I then also will give an outline for each of the Psalms. Notice the expression of suffering in verses 1 and 2. How long? Verses 3 and 4, the request for deliverance from suffering. Now, he, he gave three uh, requests there. Look, answer me, give light to my eyes, or enlighten with uh, NASB. But I would say the one word, enlighten, summarizes them all. That's what it's all about. I need to be renewed. And then we have the uh, confidence in God's deliverance from suffering, but I have trusted. Now, the thing I like about this psalm, this is designed to be preached in you know 25 to 35 minutes. Now, I've got some messages that are longer. i got one on Psalm 51 that's an hour and 15 minutes. That's not the psalm you want to hear preached. <laughs> so what I did, uh, I broke it down into three messages. So, you know, they're about 25 minutes, but there's ways to preach it. But this one, I can preach the whole psalm in about 25, 35 minutes. So it's a helpful thing. I do think, uh, although I'm not compelled to keep the time, I'm never compelled to stay within a certain limit. However, I know what they want to say. <laughs> so I try to follow that guideline. But this is a good one to be used in a, uh, a Sunday school setting, you know, picnic. When people are suffering, it's a great one to speak on. And it's not too long, so you can cover pretty quickly. And I think there's all kinds of applications to personal life because everybody will go through sometimes when they think God's far from them. If you don't, you're not living the normal Christian life. Uh, it just seems like so often God you know, just seems to be far from me. And uh, God doesn't give me my ways. Now, I've got a theological explanation when he does that, though. He's God. I'm not. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but when you're going through it, you don't see it that way. 
So I've turned to this psalm when I've been very discouraged before. And uh, I think it's a good source, and it's good to be used in a uh, setting where you have a limited time. By the way, I don't want to sound like all long messages are bad. Our pastor preaches a long time. <laughs> I mean, usually he's good till about 12 o'clock. <laughs> um, and I have some long messages. I do these creationist seminars, and usually they, they, my messages can go from, you know, 50, 45 to an hour and 15 minutes. One time I went an hour and a half. So, but the key when you do the long, you've got to make sure your audience is still with you. So, you may want to take a seventh inning stretch. But I have noticed in creationism, people are really interested in it. So, and I have PowerPoints with nice pictures and stuff like that. People always like the pictures. So, there are settings where there are places for longer messages. But, uh, you know, I think in most churches I preach in, uh, well, most of the churches I preach in, they do love me because I speak only 30 to 35 minutes. And the pastor preaches a long time. Now, that not, would not be true here, though. <laughs> but it is interesting, though. Uh, pastors, I mean, well, I guess if, if they're not interested in what they have to say, why would I want to listen to them? Seriously. If you really don't believe what you're saying, at that moment, the preacher should be his favorite preacher because he wants to expound on God's Word. Uh, however, I do think I can control some of my urges. So, you know, I love to hear my speak. Unfortunately, not everybody else does. <laughs> so you always got to factor that in. But some of these psalms are great for those short circumstances. And that's, that's a good one. Okay, now are there any questions question on, on this? Yeah, yes, on this particular song, he's given three requests, mm -hmm. and then he's also given three results or three mm -hmm. alternatives. Is that significant? Do, will that generally follow that if there are two requests, there will be two results? Or well, no, not necessarily. Okay. In this one, it works out that way. But sometimes you'll have more, more uh, requests with, I can have it where there's only a one obverse thing, if this doesn't happen, that'll happen. So, in this one, it works out very neatly. And it lends itself to sermon. We've got one, two, three requests. Three results if God doesn't answer. You know, like God needed to know if he doesn't do that, what could happen? <laughs> but that's human nature. Good question. Any other questions? Feel free to interrupt. You don't have to raise your hand or anything like that. I'm, um, you know, that formal academic setting. It's not what a church is about. Um, often when I go to churches, um, you know, I just tell people, I'm Bob. I mean, <laughs> I can't conceive of Paul saying I'm Dr. Paul or Reverend Paul. So he's using my motto and things like that. You know, there, there are places in academic education where there are tones of respect that you use and stuff like that. But I think in the church, that's not the place for it. So, I mean, respect the pastor. That's, that's healthy and right. But I'm not that. I'm just a visiting teacher. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, this is just one of my hang-ups in life. I've always had that hang-up since I got my Ph.D. It uh, seems overworked. So you were saying that in several of these songs, it, there, it's 
they're complaining as right. Is it complaining or are they just pouring it up their heart and then they switch it around? Well, is it sin complaining? I don't necessarily say that it's sin complaining. Okay. Uh, it is complaining though. They have a grief with God about something. Or a grief with somebody about something. So it comes across as a complaint. If you're making a gym, it seems harsher. If I'm making it, it sounds more gentle. So it all depends on your perspective. That's my point. All right, and, and I only say that because I've gone through some circumstances in the past couple yeah. of years, and I've found myself not only complaining but questioning. Well, read the book of Job. Yeah, and, and at times I, I beat myself up for it. Sure. And at other times I say, you know, this is what I'm thinking. I know you are in control. I know your way is best. Sure. But, uh, you know. Well, that's, <laughs> some of this relates to personalities. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes where we are spiritually in our spiritual lives. Um, I think with, uh, to me, having a family was is perhaps one of the greatest sanctifying influences in my life. Uh, you know, my daughter was very compliant, easy to raise. Uh, I wouldn't always say, joy. I mean, you know, once they hit 13, they're big criers. But uh, with my two sons, that was a different story. Uh, my middle son had more self-control. My younger son did not. And the one thing I learned with Joshua is that usually when there was some type of book, I didn't deal with it immediately. I usually waited until the next day because I knew I wouldn't get anywhere. I mean, I may belt him or something, uh, or swat him, whatever you want to use. I think I belt him, but I'm just to be honest. Makes you feel better. What's that? So make you feel better. No. Well, I had this big stick when uh, when Joshua turned 15. It disappeared. It said on it, "Get with it," and that's what I'd use on the boys. And so when he was 15. I swatted him with it, and I could never find it again. <laughs> well, we were cleaning out his room a couple of years ago, and we found it. <laughs> he hid it away. <laughs> well, in some sense, you know, you learn to adapt to the situation. Now, there were certain things that, you know, they just had to do. Um, unfortunately, when you when you have more than one child, the younger one usually gets more advantages because, as you find out, the other ones are sticking up for them. Now, you usually have to wait till they get married till you find out the truth of the matter. But it was an important thing. Uh, and it was something you just had to roll with the punches with and pray and try to exercise some wisdom. But uh, it was a situation I realized I couldn't control the way I did with my other two. And you know, I think when we're looking at the circumstances of life, some things we cannot just get hold of. And so we pray. Usually God shows us a way to work with it. He doesn't always get us out of it, though. And that's the difficulty. You know, I wish he did, but he doesn't. And I think in those cases, the lament psalms are great psalms to go through. The book of Job is a very good book to go through. Psalm 73 is something of a miniature of the book of Job. So... I think there are times in a believer's life when it's good to go through those because we can't just always get our way. 
uh, like a friend of mine used to say, I don't know, do you remember Gibby Walt? Yes. Yeah, he used to say, well, you remember Gibby, don't you? Uh, everybody doesn't drive a blue Chevrolet. <laughs> well, he's right. I mean, so, you know, you have to allow a little wiggle room and work with it. And um, with people, we try to resolve them, but we always can. So there's more times than not that we don't. And there's certain certain circumstances, like the job situations in Michigan, that's that's what's killing everybody. So what do you do? Well, you look for other jobs and, you know, hopefully get one, and sometimes you have to move on. I know uh, my middle son, Bob, he was working at JD, and we were, I mean, we were really glad to have him with us. Um, you know, we, the two children were born here, and that was my wife's love. But uh, he went out to visit his buddy Eric Menor, and Eric surprisingly got taken into a police academy. And so Bob applied, and I was shocked that he got in. So, I mean, when my wife found that out, she cried three consecutive nights. So what do you do at that point? She couldn't control the situation. I try to deal with her and say, you know, you just got to accept the reality. He's got to work. And uh, <coughs> that's sometimes those hard things to do. But it's very hard to leave when your parents are involved. So, uh, but you have to do what you have to do. I'd like to think we didn't raise our kids to uh, be stay-at-home types. I wanted them to be independent. And hopefully they all contribute to society and the good of a local church in some ways. But that's what you're striving for when you raise them. Uh, you know, it, often it works out, and sometimes there's some setbacks along the way. So, uh, you know, we pray, we pour our heart out. I think it's best to pray, pour our heart out going through some biblical material because I think it helps us control so that we don't get too crazy. But after all, I'm a little crazy and you're a little crazy. A little bit. <laughs> I'm thinking of myself. Yeah. Well, I, I have my moments. <laughs> but uh, anyway, you just you know pour your heart out. And, but ultimately, we have to recognize God's in control. And he's going to provide for us. It may not be in the way we want it, but he will take care of us. So it's, uh, anyway. But anyway, that's that's what I would recommend. Read, read Job. Okay, well, that's uh, that's an individual lament. Now, are there any other questions on that? Okay, well, let's move on to the national lament. These songs are de designed for Detroit Lions fans. <laughs> uh, since I'm a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, although they're not didn't make it this year, they still have six Super Bowls. So I'm still happy. <laughs> But if I was, what's that? Yeah, that's exactly that's what I tell the Lions fans because most of them want to rub it in that the Steelers aren't in the play, weren't in the playoffs this year. I said, but well, we got six Super Bowls. <laughs> anyway, if you're a Lions fan, this one's for you. So with this national lament in Psalm 60, it's a uh, fairly long psalm. Um, None of them are really like Psalm 119, however. So if we get to that, I don't think we'll be reading that all. 
That's just a time-consuming psalm. But uh, <coughs> let's see. Uh, can I get somebody to read psalms? I mean, I'm trying to integrate you with this. Also, uh, uh, my voice is just not recovering from the trip I had to uh, that undisclosed island. So it, it gives me a little relief. So uh, is anybody volunteer to read that? Oh. Yeah, go ahead, Ron. Thank you. You have rejected us, O God, and burst forth upon us. You have been angry. Now restore us. You have shaken the land and torn it open, mended its fractures, for it is quaking. You have shown your people desperate times. You have given us wine that makes us stagger. But for those who fear you, you have raised a banner to be unfurled against the bow. Save us and help us with your right hand, that those you love may be delivered. God has spoken from his sanctuary. In triumph I will parcel out Shechem and measure off the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine, and Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet, Judah my scepter. Moab is my wash basin, upon Edom I toss my sandal. Over Philistia I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, O God, you have you who have rejected us and no longer go out with our armies? Give us aid against the enemy, for the help of man is worthless. With God we will gain the victory, and he will trample down our enemies. Thank you. Uh, did you notice the we there? So it's talking about uh, the corporate nation. So that's why we classify as a national lament. But uh, what we need to notice, we, here we've got the same parts. Now, they break down a little bit differently. In Psalm 13, they were very clearly delineated in a progressive way. Here, one will be mentioned, it may move on, then come back to the lament, the prayer request. So this is broken up, but we can see the elements here. Look at verse 1 with the introductory appeal to God. Uh, you have rejected us, O God, and verse verse forth upon us. Uh, notice whatever else we can say there. This this is an appeal to God, but he's appealing to God. Oh God, you're the one who rejected us. Notice the lament. Uh, that verse one, you can see the lament. You have rejected us. You've uh, broken us down. You've shaken the land and torn it open. Notice that's part of this lament. This lament will run down through verse 3. Uh, you've shown your people desperate times. You've given us wine that makes us stagger. So it's, uh, it is mourning. It is a time of suffering. So we can see the lament, but notice how there's a gap here. You have verse 3, then you have the prayer request in verse 5, and uh, then verse 6 will follow. But notice he comes back to the lament in verses 9 to 10. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, O God, you who have rejected us and no longer go out with our armies? So we, we really can't miss the force of this lament. It's as if we're cut off. So he prays that lament in 1 to 3 and verses 9 to 10. 
But notice his actual prayer request is in verse 5. Save us and help us with your right hand that those you love may be delivered. Drop down to verse 11. Give us aid against the enemy for the help of man is worthless. So those are his prayer requests. Uh, Verse 4, that can be taken a a number of ways. Um, I think with the NIV, I think it's really an expression of his trust. But those who fear you, you have raised a banner. So that's the prayer request in verse 5 and verse 11. Also, uh, notice the expressions of trust. They jump out in a number of places. Verse 4, notice verses 6 to 8. God has spoken from his sanctuary. In triumph, I will parcel out Shechem. Uh, Then he goes on to list some of the surrounding countries. Notice the psalmist is confident God's going to put Israel over them all. Look at verse 12. Uh, He concludes with God, we will gain the victory. And he will trample down our enemies. Like Edom. (laughs) So, this is his uh, expression of trust in God, and it comes out very clearly. Now, what we should notice here, notice how he moves back and forth. You have this introductory appeal to God. The lament, stall, the lament starts with that introductory appeal. I know it's an appeal to God because he uses the vocative, O oh God, you've rejected us, O oh God. He lays that out. Then he has an expression of trust in verse 4. Then it's prayer requests in verse 5 notice you drop down to uh, uh, the later verses verse 9 who will bring me to the fortified city who will lead me to Edom notice in this particular case uh, he's going back to the the enemies there Uh, verse 10 we can see uh, his He uh, laments again. In fact, you can pick up the lament really as early as verse 9. Who will bring us to the fortified city? But he mentions Edom as the problem. Who will lead me to Edom? We want to defeat the Edomites. Is it not you, O God, who have rejected us? So we have that, uh, you know, the lament. Verse 11, you have another expression of trust. So you may have lament, have an expression of trust, have a prayer request. In fact, he can express that different ways. He's not locked into doing everything uh, in an orderly fashion. But we can see those issues when we look at the various national laments or individual laments. So, uh, now, any questions on that before I move on? This is a little bit more complicated because he bounces back and forth. But that's more typical of biblical literature. Uh, one of the problems with the form critics um, first of all, they're unbelievers. <laughs> That's the biggest problem. But what they want to do is they'll set up an ideal lament psalm, and you'll have these five areas laid out uh, very neatly and precisely. So all those psalms that don't agree with that, what you do is uh, you go back to Israel's supposed history, and you try to determine how this became part of the psalm, how this became part but we know it has to be from other authors because if there's one author, he would have it laid out like Psalm 13. 
Well, that's a real problem, I think, in any literature. That's, that's a disaster. You take away from the writer's freedom of choice as far as he writes his material. Um, you know, one of the things we've seen develop in our days, when I went to seminary, when I did my dissertation, I had to write it in the third person. The author this, the author that, he. However, today we write in the first person. <laughs> I, uh, me. Uh, we use also the second person. I, when With my seminary notes that I have, when I'm giving instructions to do something, I'll say you. In the old days, you didn't do it. It was just all the bland third person. Uh, well, the styles have changed. But I did an article in our journal condensing my dissertation back in 1997. If somebody compared that journal article, which is shorter, with my dissertation, they would see the contrast in style. I'm writing in the first person in the journal article, and my dissertation third person. The way critics operate, they'd say that's two different people. Well, that's very artificial. <laughs> I mean, I had the freedom of choice to say I wrote this and I wrote that. Now, if you look at the content, it's basically the same. The difference is, is I let the dust settle for about 15 years and I could summarize what I wrote in my dissertation much better. It also had some additional insights. So I took a 250, 275-page dissertation and reduced it to, I think, 30 or 40 pages in the journal. It's quite a conversation. You know, I read the journal part with the dissertation, though. Uh, brevity is good. So, but those are the artificial criteria that critics have used to divide up the Bible. And uh, usually you can pin them down. As, I think the ultimate question is, is you see the autographs as being inspired in, in air. If they walk on that a little bit, more than likely they got a pretty loose view. To me, that thing about inerrancy, that is a key issue. So if they don't think the originals were inerrant, and it's a teacher. I think that really reflects their theological liberals. Uh, so in, you know, you, uh, well, I'm, I'm real, I mean, I'm very familiar with it because we had to deal with it. When I was doing my doctoral THM work, I used to go up to Notre Dame on football Saturday. Everybody was at the football stadium. I'd park about a mile away from the library and I'd march up to it. Nobody was in it, except for the real nerds. So I just went in <laughs> went up to the religious department and they just had a better library than Grace. Uh, it was wonderful times of scholarship. But I was dealing with, with liberals there. Because I do remember I'd take a break and I'd interact with some of these guys who were getting PhDs and uh, they definitely did not believe in the inspiration of Scripture. They would have it being broken down with various sources. But that's the problem. So I didn't agree with it, and I still don't agree with it. I think the writer's got the right to write his material the way he crafts it out. So I would not break it up. I would say, let it play the flow of the text. That was his choice. So anyway, that may seem a little bit more complicated, but that's part of the author's style. Well, let's look at the content in here. Or, well, I also point out, B, that some of the other lament psalms, you've got Psalm 12, 44, 60, 80, 94, and 137. Notice the number with, compared with the individual laments, 
are greatly reduced. And then the content of Psalm 60. Notice I summarize the message of this in this fashion. Those who fear God, though (coughs) temporarily defeated by their enemies, renew their strength by claiming His promises. So those who fear God renew their strength by claiming His promises. That's the point. Uh, Now, when you look at this concept of fearing God in the Old Testament, you need to understand that that's parallel with believing in God. That's a very important concept. In the Old Testament, most of the time, believers are called God-fearers. Look for a moment at the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. I think you can see this very clearly. You know, the by faith chapter. This person did this by faith. He did another thing by faith. Somebody else did something by faith. But drop down to Hebrews 11, uh, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, and he goes on. But notice, Abraham did that by faith. Now turn back to Genesis 22. and uh, I want you to notice how the word faith is not used in this chapter. What Abraham is described as a God-fearer. Yeah, look down at the, in Genesis 22. Uh, in particular, drop down to uh, verse 12. God restrains Abram from uh, sacrificing his son. He says, do not lay a hand on the boy. He said, do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Now notice, you don't have by faith here. You have, he's a fear. So I understand that in the Old Testament, the concept of a God-fearer is often overlaps with one who believes in God. Now, what is good about one who fears God is it shows there's an element of submission to the faith. In the New Testament, sometimes that's glossed over, but there needs to be some type of uh, submission to God to have real faith. Well, the overlapping concepts just does show us that there is some type of submission. I know in our day we believe that somebody, well, I don't believe. Uh, some people believe that if you just pray a sinner's prayer, you're home free, God will live like the devil. Well, if they got a hold of the Old Testament concept of fearing God, <laughs> I don't think we do that. So I think it is an important overlap. But so in, in Psalm 60, when he's talking about those who fear God, he's talking about a believer, one who loves God. So those are uh, important concepts there. Uh, notice my outline for the psalm. The lament over the victories by God's enemies in verses 1 to 3. 
based upon God's promises of prayer for deliverance in verses 4 to 8, verses 9 to 10, a further lament over the victories by God's enemies, and then fourth, further prayer of trusting God's deliverance, verses 11 and 12. But it should reflect the ideas of the big idea. That's the point. Okay, are there any questions on that? Well, I noticed in, in verse 9 that he changed to me. Yes, he, yeah, they, they can't change to me. Okay. Is, is, is he using me there as I'm the king and I represent right, the nation? That's, that's exactly okay. right. He, and he is the author, and he does represent the nation. But the primary issue will be that he's using the we and the us. So I don't mean that that's absolutely the case, because we will see that change to me, to mine. But it's it's minimal. Okay, any other questions? Well, I appreciate your attention. We're out of time. Usually, I mean, we've got another minute, but I'm not going to go on. <laughs> so we'll pick up next week. Well, they they do believe there's a reward, but it's just more of a pessimistic thing. They don't see their God in heaven. No, they don't. They don't what? They don't. They don't see their God. Now they now they think they're gonna. I mean. Whatever Osama was promising, yes. you know, it's this life where if you kill Jews and Christians, you know, you're going to go to heaven and have all these uh, riches and women and wine, women and song, I guess. So they have a concept of that, but it's much more pessimistic because life is over. They don't have a book with quite the same promises that revolve around the person like we do. So I think that's the difference. Yeah, we do have some seminary students. Well, Wad Haddad, he's Chaldean, so he, he was never a Muslim. But we have had some Muslims converted who came to seminary. Not too many, but we have had a couple. So um, those are the ones that say that it's pretty mournful. So anyway, well, thank you for your attention. We will pick up next week on page 25, and we'll look at Psalm 51. And I suspect we'll probably spend the whole night on Psalm 51. Okay, until then, like somebody said, we've only just begun. <laughs>